Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 15? This is our last time together in this great resurrection chapter. I've entitled my exposition to you this morning, Resurrection Triumph and Praise. Before we look at the text, I want to remind you that we are once again coming to the Word of God, but we must remember that these are the very words of God. Never forget that. We rejoice in the great doctrines of of revelation and inspiration and illumination. May I remind you of them so that we can appreciate what we are doing here this morning. In the great doctrine of revelation, we understand through his word that, that the Holy Spirit revealed God's wisdom to his writers 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, it's the Holy Spirit that searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God, for no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. And then, in inspiration, the Spirit of God breathed into the very minds and hearts of his inspired writers those words that he wanted them to say in their own vocabulary, and with their own experiences in mind, so that they could record the very words of God. And then we read in John 14, verse 26, what Jesus told his disciples. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And that's what we have here in the inspired Word of God. And then illumination that we studied, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, is that great work of the Holy Spirit within us, our resident truth teacher, that helps us understand the words of God. Unlike the unbeliever, in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, that natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, those of us who have the indwelling spirit, we can appraise all things. So we humble ourselves once again before the very words of God recorded in Scripture. And I want to give you an even broader context this morning. I want to remind you of the big picture of what God has revealed to us. It's important to keep in mind the history that God has sovereignly ordained and accomplishes through the agency of his providence. We know if we look at scripture that he begins by revealing to us that which happened at creation. And that as we continue going on in the Old Testament, we see him speak about his covenant people, Israel, giving us the history of Israel and the promise of a coming Savior. And you will recall the Old Testament closes, and it's about 400 years before Jesus actually appears on the scene. And then the New Testament opens with the gospel accounts, describing to us the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They each look at him from a different perspective. 
Matthew sees him as the sovereign king. Mark sees him as the suffering servant. Luke sees him as the son of man. And John pictures him as the son of God. And then as we come to the book of Acts, we read of the history of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, his his ascension into glory and his the, the consequent coming of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. We see basically the power of the gospel. And then you have 21 epistles that are written to various churches and individuals to expand upon those great themes, giving us all of these profound doctrinal truths, such as the doctrine of the resurrection. And then it encloses with the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Christ, the final letter communicated to the Apostle John through an angel. And it starts by picturing the current church age, and then it goes on and describes the pre-kingdom judgments, his second coming that culminates in the establishment of his glorious earthly kingdom. It describes his judgment upon the wicked. It describes the blessings upon believers and the glories of the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal state. But beloved, central to all of these great themes that God has given us In his words, which again are his words, central to all of that is the death and the burial and the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and all who belong to him. And that again is the magnificent theme of the text that we have before us. And I I find myself just getting lost in the wonder of it all when I think about it. All these magnificent promises. By the way, remember, Satan wants to keep you earthbound. God wants us to set our mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. And Satan has a million ways to keep men and women enslaved to his world system, enslaved to this kingdom of darkness. Think of all the things that he has that can occupy your mind and cause you to spend your money upon that have nothing to do with his kingdom and his glory. All of the things the world holds us hostage to that can cause our lives to bring dishonor to him and forfeit blessing in our lives. Sometimes I think we get too much info in the news, don't you? Boy, don't you get depressed? I just have to turn it off at times. I was thinking about that, and somehow an old song came to my mind. You remember the Canadian singer Anne Murray? She had a song... It was called Little Good News, A Little Good News. I I looked it up. It was released in 2008. And let me just give you one of the the quotes of one of the verses. She says, nobody robbed a liquor store on the lower part of town. Nobody OD'd. Nobody burned a single building down. Nobody fired a shot in anger. Nobody had to die in vain. We sure could use a little good news today. Well, folks, we've got a lot of good news today, don't we? Because we know Christ. We live in a fallen world that God has allowed Satan to temporarily rule. So there's going to be a lot of bad news, and it's going to continue to dominate the news. And certainly we all have times in our life when we find ourselves drowning in problems. And I know a number of you are there, and my heart breaks for you. 
But aren't you thankful for the good news of the gospel? For the hope that we have in Christ. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And as we come to this passage this morning, it will undoubtedly bring encouragement to all of us regarding the difficulties that confront us. I, I think of Job. Remember, he was abandoned by, by his family. His wife told him to curse God and die, a real encouraging woman. Where did he turn to in the midst of all of that? Well, he set his mind on the things above. He set his hope on fellowship with God and a, and a new earth and a resurrection body. Remember what he said in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives. I love the Messiah. Don't you love that oratorio in that section? I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. And then he says, my heart faints within me, which literally means I'm just consumed with a longing desire for that day. Boy, diamonds are displayed best on black velvet, aren't they? Some of us are living on black velvet right now, but boy, the diamond of the gospel and the hope that is ours is so beautiful. Beloved, let me ask you before we look at the text, do do, do you believe in the physical resurrection of the redeemed? Do you believe that? I hope you do. And if you do, doesn't that thrill your soul? I hope it does. If not, there's something wrong. I mean, all the way back in Isaiah, Isaiah 26, 19, the prophet says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They shall see God. Folks, there is nothing more exhilarating, nothing more encouraging, nothing more worthy of praise than to know that we are being conformed into the likeness of Christ. And one day we are going to be given a glorified body and we're going to be able to stand in the presence of the living God. We're going to see him as he is in the fullness of his Trinitarian glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the Father, as well as the Spirit. You know, it's not uncommon for us to experience the joys of Eden one minute and the sorrows of Gethsemane the next, right? And it can happen just like that. But ultimately, because of our justification... Because we have been declared righteous, we have a certain hope of seeing Christ in all of his glory. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The old theologians called it the beatific vision, that beautiful vision when a moment in time when one day we will be able to, to feast our souls on the visible presence of Christ 
and enjoy the infinite beauty and love of God forever. That day when we will stand in his presence, blameless with great joy. That instant, that instant in time, think about this. When for the very first time, we will experience unhindered, perfected fullness of the triune God and his love for us. Can there be any greater promise to bring joy to your soul than that? Once again, the context here is Paul has been proving to the Corinthians the certain promise of a bodily resurrection that some of them were denying thanks to false teachers. And he has described the, the glory of the resurrected body. We've already studied that. And, and now in verses 50 through 58, he concludes this longest chapter of, of his letter with what you might say a hallelujah chorus for the redeemed. This is a victory song. He's describing the, 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 the transformation and, and that we will have and God's victory over his last enemy death. So let me read this passage to you, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I think it will be helpful for us to examine this text this morning under three rather simple categories. First, the Apostle Paul is, will describe to us this instantaneous transformation. And secondly, the victorious proclamation. And then there will be finally an obvious exhortation. So I want us to look at this together this morning. First of all, notice verse 50 under the heading, The Instantaneous Transformation. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now the phrase flesh and blood is a common uh, New Testament description of human life made up of those basic constituents of the human body, the physical body, and, by the way, the most liable to to decay. Remember that prior to the fall, Adam's body was sinless and it was, shall we say, deathless, not subject to disease and decay. 
But then sin came along and God cursed man and suddenly there was decay and ultimately death. And this and his body then passed on that same corruption in nature and in body to all of us. But thankfully, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for our sin. And as we know, he died and he was raised bodily and became the first fruits of, our, of the resurrection harvest of which we are part of. And this guarantees that all of us who are united to him in saving faith will likewise be raised from the dead. So bottom line, what Paul is saying here is our current bodies are suited for this earth. They're not suited for heaven. You know, even Jesus described as flesh and blood in Hebrews 2.14, even Jesus had to be transformed and had to have a glorified body before he could enter back into heaven. So he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you will recall in verses 20 through 28, Paul has discussed a a three-stage resurrection as well as two phases of the kingdom. The first phase of the kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus, and then after that, Jesus hands his kingdom over to the Father, inaugurating the eternal kingdom. I want you to think about this for a moment. In God's redemptive plan, we see him revealing in Scripture the need for a, a future earthly reign of the last Adam upon the earth in order to fulfill the mandate to rule and subdue the earth successfully on God's behalf. Moreover, we know that the Abrahamic and And Davidic and New Covenants include both spiritual as well as physical promises, which will then by necessity include the messianic reign of that last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the Messiah, also fulfills the promise of an ultimate son of David who will reign upon David's throne over Israel, Luke 1, 32 through 33, and how he will reign upon the entire earth, Zechariah tells us in Zechariah 14.9. But his earthly kingdom rule will occur prior to the eternal state, which will be the earthly kingdom, the messianic reign, will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. But I want you to understand that The kingdom of Jesus is not the phase of the kingdom that Paul is referring to here. Because since the kingdom of Jesus, his earthly millennial kingdom, will include non-glorified saints, the kingdom of God that Paul refers to here in verse 50 must be a reference to the Father's eternal kingdom, or what we call the eternal state. And I find it so fascinating to think about this. We know that Christ must return from heaven in the fullness of his glory as King of kings and Lord of lords before he can set upon what Jesus himself called his throne of glory. Jesus said in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
He goes on to say, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But Paul is saying here that flesh and blood cannot inherit this ultimate kingdom. Verse 50, he goes on to say, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, that which decomposes and decays is a relic of this fallen world as part of the kingdom of darkness. But we know, according to Colossians 3.16, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this will be that glorious day when, when as Paul described in Romans 8.21, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then he goes on to describe this instantaneous transformation. Notice this in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. In other words, I'm going to reveal something that has not been revealed before. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now, this refers to the same eschatological event as we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Remember, there Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The term caught up translates the Greek word harpazo, and it means to suddenly remove or to snatch away. And the Latin Bibles translated this word with their word raptura, from which we get the English word rapture. So this is speaking of the great snatching away, the rapture of the church. This is a signless event. And it is the next one on the redemptive timetable. We are waiting now for the great snatching away of God's church. And those alive at the rapture will accompany those who are dead, who, as Paul says, will will rise first and will meet the Lord in the air. Now, to avoid confusion, I believe Scripture teaches that there are two phases to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Phase one is when Jesus will descend from heaven and he will snatch away, he will rapture his church into the air to be with him in heaven for the duration of the seven-year tribulation. The purpose of that first coming is to uh, basically rescue the church from experiencing the divine wrath of the pre-kingdom judgments that are called the tribulation. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. You read about that in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I won't go into all of the details of that, but that is the final seven-year period where God will complete his plans for Israel and for the holy city, Jerusalem. But then the second phase is the personal 
and bodily return, physical return to this earth by the Lord Jesus Christ for him to establish his earthly millennial kingdom where he will reign with his saints on a renovated earth in fulfillment of both the the spiritual as well as the physical promises for both Israel and the nations. I do not believe that the rapture of the church and the second coming are synonymous, that they are both the same. If you, if you compare them biblically, you will see that those things that will happen at the time of the rapture are very different from the things that will happen at the second coming. Without giving you all of the text, let me just run through some of them for you. At the rapture, he comes for his saints. At the second coming, he comes with his saints. At the rapture, Christ comes in the air and returns to heaven. In the second coming, Christ comes to earth to dwell and reign. And in the rapture, Christ gathers his own, but in the second coming, angels gather the elect. In the rapture, Christ comes to reward, but in the second coming, he comes to judge. At the rapture, resurrection is prominent in Jesus' coming, as we read here in 1 Corinthians 15. But there's no resurrection mentioned in the second coming. At the rapture, believers depart from the earth, but at the second coming, unbelievers are taken away from the earth. At the rapture, unbelievers remain on the earth, but in the second coming, only believers will remain on the earth. In the rapture, there is no mention of Christ's kingdom on earth. In the second coming, Christ's kingdom is established. And finally, at the rapture, believers will receive their glorified bodies. At the second coming, no one who is alive receives glorified bodies. So again, Paul says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, the point is, whether we are raptured or resurrected from the dead, this transformation will be instantaneous. He says, in a moment, atomos in the original language, we get our English word atom from that. It's a Greek term that that refers to that which is indivisible, um, that which cannot be cut in half. Uh, A a span of time so short it is no longer divisible into a smaller unit. Now, at one time, our scientists used this term to describe the, the smallest constituent unit of ordinary matter that constitutes a, a, a chemical element. but And so they believed, therefore, that the atom would fit that bill. But that was before they learned about protons and electrons. But the point is, it's going to happen real fast, right? It says, in the twinkling of an eye. Twinkling is a Greek term referring to that which is a, a rapid movement, an instantaneous movement. And like the blink of an eye. I had to look this up. An eye blinks in one-tenth of a second. I don't know who figures this stuff out, but, but it's pretty fascinating. But I also know that that's time enough for the eye to be cleaned and lubricated. 
My eye doctor taught me that. He says, when your eye blinks, it doesn't just go up and down. At the end, it rubs like that. So that those little, those little uh, holes in the bottom of your eyelids that secrete oil can be cleaned so that they can keep your eye lubricated. Boy, we're fearfully and wonderfully made, aren't we? Well, I'm chasing a rabbit here. Sorry about that. It's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And, of course, uh, trumpet sounds were symbolic of, of, of the sound that was used historically for Israel to summon God's people to come into the presence of the living God. And so this will be a, the, the final sound of the church age when the bridal church will be prepared to now meet her groom who comes to snatch her away unto himself. John speaks of this in John 14, beginning in verse 2. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, referring to Jesus speaking here, actually. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If we look at Scripture, we see that he comes, he snatches away his bride. There is the, 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 the great marriage supper that we enjoy, the time when we receive our rewards, and then we return with Christ at his second coming when he comes to establish his glorious kingdom. Paul speaks of this in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him. In glory. And at that last trumpet sound, he said, the dead in verse 52 will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, this body that we are currently housed in that is subject to decay and death must clothe itself with a body that is indestructible and one that is eternal. Boy, don't you long for that day? <sighs> Especially as I get older and something starts hurting and you think, where, where did that, what did I do? And it's arthritis or it's whatever. You young people, your time's coming. I think of Romans 8, verse 19. I mentioned it earlier that he says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. By the way, that text, it's giving you the imagery, even in the original language, of standing on your tiptoes and straining your neck and straining your eyes to be able to see something that's coming. And he's saying that all of creation is longing for that. I remember when I was at Moody Bible Institute, we had a thing called PCW, Practical Christian Work Assignments. And every semester you had a different one. And one of the ones that I had was to go to a, um, a home for disabled patients uh, not too far down the street from the institute there in Chicago. And uh, we would, I went with a team and we would do a worship service for these people. And... One of the common stories that they loved to tell was how their greatest problem there was keeping the inside panels of their windows cleaned. Because they said that so many of the disabled people would smash their face on the windows looking for Jesus to come. Isn't that precious? That's how we need to be. 
So Paul speaks of this instantaneous transformation. And secondly, the victorious proclamation beginning in verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put in put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting from Isaiah 25 and verse 8. Then verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Quoting from Hosea 13 and verse 14. He goes on to say the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, I'm curious, is that your reaction? One of just overwhelming gratitude and thanksgiving. And I might add that this is the real test of the Christian profession. A person who is absolutely exhilarated with the reality of all that Christ has done and what awaits them in him. That Jesus Christ saves sinners. That Jesus Christ died and he was buried and he rose again. And he lives today. And all of us who are united to him will likewise be raised with him in glory. This needs to be the the soul exhilarating promise from God that animates our hearts to praise. Now, obviously, death is still our destiny. But as Paul says here, it's lost its sting. Fascinating statement. And, and, And what is the sting? Well, he says it's sin. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And oh, what a horrific sting it is for those without Christ. Like the stinger of a wasp that gets embedded in your skin and continues to pump venom into your body. The stinger of sin remains embedded in the lives of the unredeemed. And continues to secrete its poison. And unless they repent, it will happen throughout eternity. But jumping ahead to the next verse. But thanks be to God, he says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for the believer, sin has been dealt with, right? Sin has been forgiven. There's no more stinger there. John, 1 John 2, verse 12, our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You might say the stinger has been removed. We still sin and we still die, but the effects of sin are removed at death because sin itself has been removed. Death for the believer is merely a transformation, a transition from this body into the glorified state and to sinless perfection in a realm where sin no longer exists. First John 1 and verse 7, the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. Romans 5 verse 17, Paul says, For if by the transgression of the one, referring to Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of the grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. But won't you notice, Paul also adds this important statement in verse 56. He says, and the power of sin is the law. But what's he referring to here? 
Well, we must understand that it is the law of God that reveals his holy standard. And once we see his holy standard, the light of his holiness reveals the horror of our sin. It is the law that reveals to us the gravity of our sin. Romans 3 and verse 20, Paul says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We have no idea how sinful we really are until we see what God has asked us to be. Is there one amongst us who loves the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, who loves our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? And on it goes. I must add that God's law extends far beyond what is written in his word. You must understand that it is also written upon the heart of every image bearer that God has created, leaving all men without excuse. Perhaps you've heard the critic, as I have many times, who wants to put God on trial and accuse him of being unfair. They will say, well, wait a minute. How can God possibly condemn those who never heard him, who never read the Bible, who knows nothing of Christ, nothing of the gospel? They know nothing of God's law that they have violated. Well, let me give you the brief answer to that. There are many passages that speak of this, but certainly Romans 1, verses 18 through 23, makes it clear that all men are without excuse because of two things, because of creation and because of conscience. That God exists is is abundantly clear. Through natural revelation, all man has to do is look out and see creation, and he knows that there is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. But God's creation, you must understand, also works together with man's innate understanding that God is placed within him, to bring about an awareness of sin and an awareness of judgment. Romans one twenty one. for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. You see, everyone knows that God exists regardless of what they tell themselves or tell other people. In fact, every human being has an internal comprehension that there exists life after death. Solomon affirms this in Ecclesiastes 3.11, where he talks about how God has set eternity within the hearts of men. But the critic must also understand that God's law has been written upon the heart of all men and women that God has created in his image. And it is his law that informs their conscience of what is right and what is wrong leaving them without excuse. Romans 2, beginning in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You see, no man will be able to stand guiltless before God's bar of justice. And had he responded to the light that God had given to him through reason, as he looks at 
at creation and through conscience, God would have saved him. Jesus made this abundantly clear in John 7, beginning in verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Paul spoke of this as well in Acts 17, beginning in verse 26. Remember that he's he's addressing the, the, the pagans there in Athens, and he tells them that God made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, and they, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see, dear friends, any man or any woman that genuinely, sincerely seeks after God, that sincerely wants to somehow know who he is and worship him, will find him. No matter who they are, no matter where they are. God has promised this in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, there are scripture teaches that there will be degrees of of punishment in hell based upon the amount of light that was given to those who rejected it. Nevertheless, all men receive the light through creation and through conscience. So indeed, verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Again, the law that is written on the very heart of every man and every woman and is announced to them every moment of their life through their conscience. So indeed, verse 56 The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I hope this is the true expression of your heart. My mind goes to Paul's words in Romans 5 and verse 2. Remember, there's a great text there. He's talking about our justification. And he says, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Exalt means to rejoice or to revel, to boast, to glory on account of something. And what he's saying is we as believers, because we have been declared righteous, can can rejoice. We need to jump for joy in sheer jubilation when we reflect upon the immovable standing that we have in grace. That is the basis of our confident hope of future bliss. We exalt in the glory of God. By the way, there in that text, he goes on to describe two events that await us, that we are going to experience unrestricted personal fellowship with the triune God. And secondly, we are going to experience personal transformation into the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians 5, verse 2, Paul says, In this house we groan. In this house we groan. As we get older, we groan louder and louder. In this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our garment from heaven. And so with all of this, moving from the instantaneous transformation to the victorious proclamation, finally to the obvious exhortation, verse 58, therefore, in light of all of this, this whole chapter, therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. A term steadfast, be steadfast. It means not subject to change, not subject to variation. Take your stand and hold your position, especially in this context, regarding the resurrection and all of the gospel truths surrounding that. Paul spoke of this as well in Colossians 1.23. He says, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. And he says, immovable. It means unshakable. It means enduring. To put it in our vernacular, it, it, it means to be the rock of Gibraltar when it, comes to, when it comes to gospel truths. Students, I want you to hear me. Don't let some foolish professor that may know error better than you know truth move you away from the great truths of the word of God, from the gospel. Because believe me, they will try. Be immovable, always abounding. Another magnificent term, always abounding. It, it literally, literally carries the idea of going above and beyond. That's the idea. Let your service to Christ be above and beyond. Let it be plentiful. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, in the promotion of his glorious kingdom. Go over and beyond in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil, toil speaks of, of working to the point of exhaustion. Knowing that, that your exhausting service is not in vain in the Lord. Now remember, those who were denying the, the, the resurrection would, were, would basically have you believe that, that, that your faith is in vain. And, and, and your work is in vain. But it's not. That's what Paul is saying. Labor according to his will and, and through his merits, and you will reap a harvest beyond your wildest imagination. Well, dear friends, what about you? Have you ever had a job performance rating? What, 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 if, we, what if we had that right now? We could all read each other's rating here before the Lord. What would it say? Are you serving Christ above and beyond, or do you just serve yourself? You need to ask yourself that. Do you live for Christ, or do you live for yourself? Are you always abounding in the work of the Lord? Are you going above and beyond? Or can you find a hundred excuses to justify your apathy, your cowardice, your laziness? You know, there are so many people here at Calvary Bible Church that give of their time and their resources. I am so grateful for that. The ratio is far greater than in most churches, and I I give God the glory for that. But folks, just think what it would be like if everybody gave of their time and their resources. Imagine the blessings that God would lavish upon this church if, for example, just, just one Sunday per year, 
you would join the two faithful ladies up there in the heating plant and come and pray for the service and for the church. Well, you know, pastor, it's, you know, that, I mean, after all, we got kids and we're going to be here for a long time and excuse, excuse, excuse. And I think, oh, yeah, why didn't I think of that? I mean, think how much more efficient it is. You know, just stay home and pray or, or kind of pray while you're in the car. I mean, whatever you do, don't make any effort to come before the Lord and really show him how serious you are about his glory. I mean, after all, that's not efficient. You know, as I think about it, we don't even need to come to church. I mean, think about all the gas you could save and all the time. Just stay home. You know, maybe give a little little bit of money and I could do some kind of sermon, put it on the Internet. I mean, why even have church? Let's make our Christianity so simple, so efficient, that we don't even know we're living it. People, what has happened to us? Imagine what it would be like if everybody got serious about abounding in the work of the Lord, going above and beyond. Somebody that would say, you know, I I really want to help organize and lead a children's choir so that, I don't know, kids could sing at church every now and then, maybe sing at Christmas. Imagine what it would be like if more would say, boy, I really want to minister to children and to youth and to disciple people. I, I, I want to know who's lonely in the church, who's hurting, so that I can come along beside them and, and care for them and love them. Imagine what it would be like if everyone got serious about intentional one-anothering within even the CBC family. To the point where we've got to start up five or six more Wi-Fi groups and, and the women's Bible study's got to find a larger place to meet. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine if everyone in this church got serious about targeting someone in their family or within the sphere of their influence for evangelism and began to commit time every day to pray for them and to look for opportunities to somehow give them the gospel. Imagine if you go on social media and rather than promoting yourself or some, I don't know, recipe or some political position, imagine if you use that to promote Christ. You put Bible verses on there and quotes on there and and you just exalt Christ. You proclaim the gospel. You, you, you celebrate your church. Imagine if on church cleaning day, the deacons would say, you know, there were so many people. We, we got everything done within about 30 minutes. And, and we just spent the rest of the time singing praises to God. Can you imagine that? Imagine if everyone got serious about investing their, their lives their time, and their treasure in the kingdom. You know, I wonder who will still be here, not if, but when the persecution comes. They haul me off to jail. Who's going to be here? I think of Epaphroditus, remember in Philippians 2, verse 25, 
Paul describes him as a brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. You know, I'm so thankful once again for so many of you who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, both by serving in this church and serving outside of the church. I think of my 95-year-old father that travels all over the country still serving Christ. But, oh, dear Christian, think of all that Christ has done for us. What are we doing for him? In Revelation 22 and verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And certainly those works that survive God's testing fire will be those that are worthy of praise. And I pray that that will be, that there will be many for you. But may I encourage you as I close this morning, this Thanksgiving, let's all rejoice in what Christ has done. And on the basis of that, examine our hearts and say, Lord, I want to get serious about being steadfast, immovable, always abounding. Not sometimes abounding, but let it be the character of my life to go above and beyond for your glory, because of your grace, for the sake of the kingdom. And especially this Thanksgiving, to celebrate Christ, who is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest of which we are all a part. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. May they bear much fruit in each of our lives as we await that day when you come to either snatch us away or take us away in death. But we give you praise for the hope that is in Christ. And for those that do not know you, I pray that You will bring to bear upon their souls such overwhelming conviction that they will be terrified of the judgment that awaits them. And because of that, see the glory of the cross and run to that cross and cry out for mercy and for grace a mercy and grace that you will give them, so rich and so free. Lord, thank you for this time we could be together. Bless our Thanksgiving dinner to follow and and our time of fellowship. May it be sweet and may it truly be an expression of the gratitude that we all have in our hearts for what you have done for us. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.